What's going on, world? It's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Done. Today's guest is a comic, an actor whose work I've followed since the age of 15, going all the way back to a little hood classic called Fat Beach. This brother's worked with Matthew McConaughey. He's worked with Kate Hudson. He's worked with Danny Glover. He's worked with Kevin Hart. He's worked with Oprah. I mean, the list goes on and on. He also had a string of successful straight-to-DVD films in the early 2000s, everything from Chat Room to Malibuti to Q to, I mean, the list goes on and on. So I'm very, very excited to speak to Mr. Brian Hooks. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, hey, I'm doing good, man. I can't complain. Just, you know, trying to stay safe and keep everybody around me safe in these crazy times. Uh, No doubt. I hear that. I hear that. So my first question is, growing up in Bakersfield, California, who were some of your early acting influences? Um, I would say um, when I was in Bakersfield, man, I was geared on sports. Um, So I was playing baseball and basketball, and I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. Um, But as as far as entertainment, man, I was just loving, like, the legends back then, the Red Fox, the Eddie Murphys, the, uh, you know, the the Richard Pryors, and those guys were sort of the ones who we were just, you know, sneaking and hiding in the corner and, and listening to when moms and pops weren't looking. And so that's that's where we got all our energy from. And then uh, when Living Color hit, I was uh, a big fan of all those guys. So we would come back the next day, and me and my buddy would, you know what I mean, we would recite the whole show. So Damon Wayans has been a big influence. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Jim Carrey and all those guys. When did you realize that you wanted to pursue an acting career? As I said, growing up in Bakersfield wasn't much opportunity to do that, um, but it was when I moved out here for uh, college uh, to Los Angeles, uh, attending Cal State University Northridge, and then all of a sudden, you know, all those different things and opportunities and entertainment, were, they were at reach, you know what I mean? They were reachable. And while I was attending college at CSUN, I started to run around trying to get my feet wet with different things. And so one of the things I did is, you know, I was a math major, but I kept a, um, I, I would keep a acting class or a film class on top of my math studies. So once my schedule was full with the stuff I was supposed to be taking, then I would, you know, add a class or, class or two. Um, with the acting and things like that because, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And um, I would ultimately um, end up getting a small agent, um, Barbara Cameron. It was uh, Candace Cameron's mom from Full House and all that good stuff. I was super excited about that. And long story short, I ended up submitting myself um, through – what was called the drama log and it's now called backstage west and to where they have listed the productions of different things that you could submit yourself for short films student films you know smaller independent films and in there was a small independent film called fat beach and so i submitted my headshot ultimately got an audition 
did good at the audition. They called me for a call back. I go back on the call back. I knocked that out. And they would call me three more times, three or four more times before they offered me the role. And Doug Ellen, I don't know if you know, uh, who created Entourage, was the writer and director of Fat Beach. And so um, he chose me to be his guy. And then that sort of, that sort of really set the ball in motion and uh, put me in play as far as, you know, me making a living uh, as an actor and doing all that good stuff, man. So speaking on Fat Beach, how was it on the set for your first feature? It's really, I think, the first hip-hop beach movie that we really had. I mean, you had Coolio yeah. on that joint, you had a couple more, you know, MCs. It was just, you know, it seemed like working, working on that one was an all-day, nonstop party because you guys were constantly on the beach shooting with beautiful women. <laughs> It was, man. Fat Beach was crazy, and but it was my first thing, man, and I was so green, so I was so excited, but at the same time, I was so locked in. When I tell you, like, you know, I, I, I studied and prepared so hard for that film, man. You know, on camera, it might look like I just went out and I just completely acted a fool uh, for the 20, you know, 20-something days we shot, but, man, I studied and prepped for that film so much because I was so excited and um, the entire process was surreal man because you know I was making a movie and I was starring in a movie um, with uh, Jermaine Hopkins at the time from Juice, Lean on Me and all those films that I had watched and known and as we were making it um, the process was just so exciting like you say we had days I remember we were shooting in Marina Del Rey out here in Los Angeles, and uh, Wesley Snipes had stayed in one of the towers over in Marina Del Rey, and he just walked out. And you know, of course, we had a you know bunch of lovely ladies on set, <laughs> so uh, and he just walked over, man, and he just hung out and watched us shoot. And this was at the height when you know what I mean, when, when Wesley Snipes was Wesley Snipes, man, and. You know, and he chopped it up with me and gave me advice and hung out for a bit. And and so it was things like that constantly happening throughout us shooting this. And then Coolio, who was one of the biggest artists at the time and had some of the biggest, you know, records out, um, was a part of it as well, man. So that whole experience, man, that, that was the beginning for me. And it was just simply amazing. I have not one bad thing to say. And I think it was because, you know, it was just like a dream come through. And I just stepped into this dream, man, and I was making this movie. And then, of course, you know, it came out on theatrical, and it did okay. But then on DVD, it just completely changed the game and, and went through the roof, man, until that movie just became a little cult classic. Following that beach, you began to build up an impressive resume with your supporting work in films such as High School High and Bullworth. One of the films I was surprised to see you in was Beloved back in 98, where you portrayed the young version of Danny Glover's character. How was it being on the same set as Oprah and Danny? Oh, my God, man. That was was amazing, man. I forgot about that for a minute. that's again another you know surreal experience, man. I'm a I'm a very humble dude by nature. It's not nothing that I try to do. It's just who I am and 
how I was raised and where I come from. So all these moments, man, when I was working on these different projects were all a super big deal to me. I think one of the things with entertainers, once they start to grow and do things, they sort of strip themselves of becoming a fan um, of, you know, of their peers and so on and so forth. But it's just the opposite with me, man. I'm I'm a fan of a lot of the people I work with, and as we're working, I'm still a fan, and then afterwards I'm a fan, so it's a great experience. And uh, Danny Glover and, uh, and, and Oprah Winfrey and Jonathan Demme uh, directed that, man. And so they flew me out to Philly to shoot this period piece, man, you know what I mean? And so you take off and it's, you know, I was still green, man, even at that time. So it's first class from the house to the airport, from the airport to the hotel, to the set, you know, they're treating you like a king. And the first day I got there, man, I walked in the trailer in Philly. And uh, they were shooting that day, so you know, you know, my role—I maybe worked a week on that film, maybe a little more. I was out there, and so they were in the midst of production. So when I would come up, you know, there was—you know—they shot me over to uh, hair and makeup so they could check you out, see what they need to do, how they're gonna do it. It's a period piece, so they had to add a few elements. And um, Oprah happened to be sitting in the trailer, man, and so. The first thing I noticed was her feet. Bro, these feet look like something off a horror movie. Like the feet, <laughs> the, the feet, were, and, and, and my whole, and I was, my, my head at that moment was spinning because I'm like, yo, all this money this woman has in her pocket, she has to do something with those feet, whether she cut them off and, and implant a new feet, something has to be done. And so it really shook me. But, of course, I come to find out that, like, yo, no, that's not her feet, but they had been made up um, to look crazy because it was a period piece, and back in those days there were no shoes. And if there were shoes, there were no socks, so everybody's feet were weathered and bad. And so I was relieved and happy, man, because (laughs) that was just going to shock my whole world. So it turns out Oprah has beautiful feet, uh, very rich, billionaire's feet, um, and, uh, and that was just for the production, man. So that was my intro into walking on the set, man, and so... And then the next uh, week or so was amazing. Uh, Jonathan Demme uh, is a director, uh, is a legend. Uh, Danny Glover. Um, there was a lot of folks on that film set. It was it was a pleasure to be there. Your first leading role was the 2000s Three Strikes, directed by DJ Poole. Now, Three Strikes had Antonio Fangares, David Allen Greer, Azion Love, I mean, George Wallace, just some comedic legends. Did you feel any pressure carrying your first film with those legends around on the set? Man, I, I, I stay so ready. I didn't at all. It was just another situation because I was just so excited and happy to be a part of it and so excited that they trusted me um, to be the lead in that film. 
And like you say, you know, Mike Epps, Monique, um, there were so many of us in there, Faison. And so I was surrounded, by, again, by all these people who, you know, still today I'm a huge fan of, you know what I mean, their work. But I, I didn't I didn't feel the pressure, man. I just, uh, you know, I'm just built to where I dive in and get to work. And I know that I have something to bring, something to offer, and I can hold my own, and then that's what I did. And that was a character where Pooh wanted it played real. He didn't want it too over the top. And it was just this, you know, guy dropped into this uh, situation and scrambling to figure it all out before the walls, you know, completely closed in, man. But, again, on that set, we had a ball. So many friendships, like, you know, the real movie is, you know, often behind the scenes, and it's the friendships and the, the laughter that come with that, man. And Three Strikes was no different, man. David Allen Greer, you know what I mean? DJ Pooh, who's just a, just a genius, man. That dude is uh, really, really brilliant, man, just a creator from music to film and anything. He's just a creator. He did one of the... Uh, uh, the uh, what what is what is it called? The games he wrote games and um, just a legend, man. So I was uh, blessed to be there, man. And three strikes again became one of those, you know, those cult classics. That is, you know, I can go anywhere in the world and people are familiar with three strikes, and they never it, it never leaves rotation. It's always in rotation somewhere. It's like one of those movies that's never going to go away. And so it was a blessing to be a part of it, and, and definitely um, def, definitely the centerpiece of everything that I've done. After a few years in the industry, you decide to start creating your own content, beginning with Q the movie. Is it true that you saw a 5,000% return on your investment with Q the movie? Yeah, very true, man. That, 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 that film and that, that action changed. It, it changed my life. It changed the course of my career, and it, it really put me in a different box than most actors and entertainers. My good friend, Barry Bowles, and at the time, Barry was in film school at Cal State Northridge, and I was acting, and it was coming off the success of Fat Beach at the time with this one. And so he approached me, man, and he was like, yo, let's make a film. And I've always been very business-minded, so when some actors may have ran from that because of the unknown, I ran to it, like, yo, no, I get it. Um, and so long story short, Barry had, you know, gambled on basketball games, and I think he had like 12 grand, and he was like, I need two or three grand more. And I think we ultimately ended up having 13, 14 grand, 12, 13 grand, something like that. And we went out and we made this small movie, Q. And when we finished, the movie was absolutely horrible. <laughs> like, it, it, was, it was horrible. We did not know what we were doing, but. At the end of the day, we had 90 minutes, which is the, the length required for it to be a legitimate feature, and it was funny. There was a lot of funny stuff in it. So we ended up licensing that film to this, you know, smaller mid-level distributor uh, by the name of Xenon, and 
they took the film because they knew the numbers on Fat Beach, and those numbers on DVD particularly were through the roof. So they were like, we'll give it a shot. And long story short, man, that film we made for, you know, it was like thirteen grand or someone in there, ended up making like $800,000. And for them, we had found a niche to where we could, we could control our own destiny and not have to wait to be justified by a studio or by executive or by whomever um, felt they were doing the justifying. We found this little niche so we can have a business and make these smaller independent films and have a huge return. And so after that, it came one film after another after another to where I was able to create um, my own path and we were able to make these films and make great returns. And when the studio stuff came, we shut it down, hop over there, do the big studio movie, then I get right back into my lane making these films. And that sort of became the foundation for me. Um, I think the next one we did was Nothing to Lose, which is a romantic comedy we shot out in Virginia. And that film we made for $100,000, and it made north of $4 million. And at that time, they stopped reporting to us what it was making. So what it ultimately made, honestly, can't even say. We started battling back and forth for, uh, you know, for, for, for them to be uh, transparent. But it was up at, like, uh, I think it was like four, north of $4.2 million um, with that small film. And with that, we just sort of changed the game. And as a wave went through um, the entire, you know, Hollywood and studios and everything to where they were like, wait a minute, we can take these films that we don't necessarily want to do this huge theatrical budget and we don't want this huge marketing and advertising budget to take them theatrical, but we can kill that overhead by taking them straight to DVD. And that's when you've seen studios try to do that and become extremely successful with it. And a lot of that was due to the success of Nothing to Lose that I did with my partner, Barry Bowles, at the time. And uh, so Q set the, set the chain reaction for us to just really, you know what I mean, carve out space and, and change the game. And it's because of those actions that now I'm able to sustain, and I've never really had to wait on anyone to justify me or pick me because I was picking myself, <laughs> you know what I mean, and going out and making these films and making living. Yeah, Nothing to Lose is one of my um, favorite joints because I can remember when I worked um, out of college and I worked at the Base Exchange, you know, we would always carry your movies in the exchange. Like every Tuesday, it seemed like for like six months straight, it was a new Brian Hooks movie, you know, coming into the exchange. You know, they were being sold for anywhere from 9.95 to 14.95, and you know, we couldn't mm. keep them in because you were that well-known by, you know, the young folks in the military as well as, I guess, you know, you know, black folks, man. We see somebody black on the cover, we usually end up buying right. it, you know, right. just because. Right. And so, I mean, your hustle, right. you were on very um, inspiring, and I really didn't know how you were selling stuff out until 
I got older, I just saw it as like, yeah, man, this brother's in everything. Like, he's not slowing down with his hustle. So how fast were you and Barry knocking out your movies on your, on, on your shooting schedule, if you don't mind asking? Man, we would do, we would do, I, I think our sweet, sweet spot was like 14 days. We would knock him out in like two weeks. 14 days, we'd be uh, in and out. There wasn't, it definitely wasn't money to go three weeks. And, um, you know, and anything short of 14 days, we were sort of, you know, uh, stressing ourselves out. <laughs> so uh, the sweet spot for us was usually right at 14 days, man. And, um, you know, again, we were making these, you know, lower-budgeted films, um, but it was a way that we could control our own destiny. And, and again, that's the business side of me and the business mindset because, uh, you know, while most actors and entertainers, they, you know, the, the bit drive is fame. And so they would rather be on a billboard in the middle of the busiest cross session to then actually have money in their pocket and be comfortable. You know what I mean? It's that fame, that, that notoriety that drives them. For me, it has never been that way. You know what I mean? Um, if, if anything, wanting notoriety would, for me, would only be so that I can leverage that into the business aspects of what I was doing. But most entertainers feed off that. So while they would not want to do a smaller film that they own or learn how to create their own films, they do now, but at the time, it wasn't so popular. People didn't get it. Why would you do that? Well, you know, you, you make a big studio film, and it may make out of one scale to one to ten, it may make ten as far as revenue. Well, I'll make these smaller films, and they may make six on a scale of six to ten, but I own that entire six. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was there, you know what I mean, thinking outside the box instead of knocking on those same doors. It took a step down to those mid-level distributors that said, yo, we could turn these films out for 250000 under half a million, 150000 and make a huge profit. So it made business sense, and it allowed us to go out and make films and act and do what we love. And, you know, and, and people were going into blockbusters to get their big superstar movie, but they was also like, yo, get that Brian Hook joint too. He a fool. You know what I mean? So they were yeah. walking out with the summer blockbuster and, and the Brian Hook summer movie, you know what I mean, in the other hand, and, and you know, and again, it's been a blessing because that's been my foundation. And I was learning even more than I understood that I was learning to where it is today when we're in such an independent time. And now it's cool to be independent and cool to make your own movies. Um, you know, I can, in essence, make a film um, with two hands tied behind my back because I've always had to. So now it's second nature. If you give me a little, I can do a lot. If you give me nothing. I still make it happen, and um, now in the process of taking it to the next level with some things, so um, I'm really going to turn those up. So while you're becoming the king of urban DVDs, you also find time to book a role on the sitcom Eve and 03. 
what do you recall about working with Eve as a first-time actress? She used to grab my butt all the time. I didn't like that <laughs> much. No. <laughs> Yo, again, man, I keep saying the same thing. Again, it was like, you know, these, uh, I, I, you know, at that point, I've, I've done some, you know, cool things and been a part of some cool things. But you keep putting me in the space, in the room with these people who, you know, I love their music or I love their work or I'm a fan or, you know what I mean? And and so, you know, the story keeps evolving. So now I'm on a show doing a pilot with Eve and, you know, she's cool as, cool as hell and we're hanging out and we're doing this show and we shoot the pilot and the pilot is like, yo, if this is all we do, that was an amazing experience. Like, I'm from Bakersfield, California. I don't know. If, I thought I was going to be doing something else. I didn't know I would be doing a TV show on TV with E. You know what I mean? But here I was. And then a couple of months after that, we get the call that, yo, the show's been picked up. And then from there, we go on to do, I think, three, three or four seasons, and we're doing 22 episodes back then. So you're talking about, like, 60, what, 66 episodes of yeah. us just working together, man. And we, it, it, we had the time of our lives, really became a family. Like, we were vacation together. And there's all these horror stories um, that I never had to deal with of other sitcoms and shows the people in the cast not getting along and egos, but, man, when I tell you we were like a family, like we were really like a family. I mean, we would work 10, 12-hour days if we have a long day and then go hang out for four to six more hours. <laughs> They're like, yo, y'all want to get something to eat around the corner? We're like, okay. And so we would go do that, go home, wake up early, come back to set. So we really loved each other. And I think it came across in our show as well, man. We really got along and we were really friends. And everybody's busy doing their own thing now, but we're still friends today. And the creator of that show, Meg Deloach, just a pure genius. Um, she's one of the few people that that actually taps me and reaches out to me and, you know what I mean, and exploits my talent in everything that she does, man. So... I love Meg and appreciate Meg. And then Troy Carter's also always been a big Brian Hooks fan. And I was, he was an executive producer on Eve. Um, I think he runs uh, on Spotify now. He was, you know, Lady Gaga. He broke her. So he's a really cool dude, done big things. And he was also one of the EPs on that show who, who put me down, man. But that was a, that was a dope experience. So, unfortunately, Eve was canceled without a proper resolution. Where do you right. think your character Nick would be in 2020? I think Nick would be, has been married and divorced in <laughs> 2020. In fact, we, uh, we have had talks of rebooting that, um, and we're still talking about it, rebooting that. And ironically, Nick was uh, married and divorced with the kid um, is what we were throwing around. And so I do see him there, you know what I mean? Because Nick was, as much as he was anti-relationship and petty to a degree, I could see him have 
falling head over heels with somebody and and uh and 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 and, and tying the knot you know but uh who knows and maybe 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 we will see that maybe maybe we'll see uh Eve uh kick back up and reboot and Nick was uh, smart though cuz Nick was an IRS agent wasn't he yeah, he was the IRS man. You mess with him, he had you in. You know, he 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 can have you in some trouble, man. <laughs> yeah, he had you in some trouble. You don't even know where it came from. Yep. Yeah, that's what we don't see a lot. Is we don't see a lot of black IRS agents, you know, in the media when it comes to entertainment. No. It's very rare you see somebody that's you know not at all, not at all. In fact, you know, especially in sitcom, I don't remember that ever even happening again since then. All right, so you had the chance to work with a young Kevin Hart on the 2004 comedy Soul Plane. Looking back, did you have any idea that Kevin Hart would become the megastar he is today? No. No. I did not. Um, But Kevin did. (laughs) Kevin would have no problem telling you. In fact, um, you know, uh, and and I think one to start. I think Soul Plane got a bad rap. Like a lot of times, we get so in our feelings as you know, black people that we we railroad ourselves in a sense in entertainment. And I think the thing you have to understand that uh, the sitcom is situation comedy, and it's based on conflict. So the idea of a perfect situation it, it doesn't make for good TV. So there always has to be some element of distress or something broken. And I think we've been beat up so much that we get defensive, rightly so. And so when they show images of uh, our, you know, our, our these shows for us and they don't feel whole or wholesome, you know, we sometimes get upset. But you got to understand there has to be something wrong for the show to have life and push to fix it. But sometimes he's like, my hell no, that what the daddy at? You know, it's <laughs> like, hold on, the daddy coming, the daddy coming. But, you know, but they be on rallies and got the show canceled before the daddy get there in episode six. So, um, but it's so playing was that to the degree to where, you know, the airplanes that the Zucker brothers did back in the days, and they did a number of them, that's what this was. It was an urban version of, uh, of those, you know, those uh, those airplane movies and Naked Guns and all that, that the Zucker Brothers did so good with that over-the-top comedy, and this was the crack at that. So it was never meant to be taken seriously, you know what I mean? It wasn't an autobiography. It wasn't, you know, uh, beloved. It was, um, it was like a balls-to-the-wall comedy of just saying, how silly and ignorant can we be? And that's not for everybody. But there is an audience who enjoyed that. And so, you know, people came down so hard on the movie. And um, and, uh, and then it was bootlegged so crazy that I think, you know, that sort of, it sort of overshadowed the, the history with that film and how many, you know, black comics and, 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 and were in that film, you know what I mean? There were so many people in that film now that have gone on to do cool things and whatever, and Kevin was the lead, and, you know, and, and, and Kevin was clearly 
funny, um, but, you know, he, he would let you know. We went on to work on Fool's Gold together, and Kevin used to always tell me, man, I'm next. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, no, really, I'm next. And I was like, all right, now, now you don't understand. I'm next. And, uh, you know, and then he he uh, he worked hard. He hustled hard. He, you know, grinded out his stand-up and, when, you know, I don't know the details of the relationship with, you know, with Hollywood, but a lot of times, you know, they don't see your vision or they don't understand your worth. But I think he always did. He was out on the road knocking it out to where, you know, the roar of him being on the road doing stand-up became so big that it could not be ignored. And and now he is who he is. Hey, Eddie's work ethic is um, undeniable. I always tell folks I'm a – like you were saying earlier about comedy being so layered and so subjective, which it is, you know, because what I find funny, you might not find funny. But right. I'm like, the thing with Kevin Hart, you know, I've been following Kevin Hart since like 98, but I was still in high school and he was doing stand-up out in Philly. And to see him get to where he is now, like that little cat, man, he worked his ass off to get to where he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't just blow up overnight like people try to argue no. that he blew up overnight or that he's um over – Saturated. I'm like, it's not that he's oversaturated, it's just that he saw a niche and he was just able to get in there and do what he did. Like, he was just killing the game. So, so where yeah, he the, is reality, now, the reality is a lot of people, when they get that opportunity or when they get to that point, they're not ready. And or they have other cruxes and vices that prevent them from, you know, really uh, relishing in and exercising you know, everything that's afforded to them. Like Kevin, when he got that chance, you know, he, he Pac-Man it all up. You know what I mean? But again, so he had his head on tight. You know what I mean? And he took advantage of all the opportunities, which is exactly what he was supposed to do. And it's what everyone else would do as well if they had the opportunity. But, you know, a lot of people get the opportunity and they ain't ready. You know, he was ready. Axe. 2007, Slasher Fake, Dead Tone, was your directorial debut with co-director Deion Taylor. Were you always intending yeah. to step out on the camera at some point? What was that? Were you always intending to direct at some point? Um, yeah, but not then. Um. I always thought, you know, eventually when, you know, after this, that, and the other that I would direct. And long story short, as we were prepping and putting that film together, I wanted to get a certain level of the director to come in and really take the film to the next. And with the choices we were afforded, we weren't, really getting that, be it someone was unavailable or they were this or they were that. But as we were looking, we were still prepping and planning the film and going back and forth with the DP who we had brought on board. And he just turned one day and he was just like, why don't you direct the film? And I had never really thought about that because, you know, producing and starting the film, co-wrote the film, it was a lot of hats. And I was like, oh, well, you know, he's like, listen, you know, you've been pretty much mapping out this whole thing. You've been doing everything that a director would do, you know what I mean? All that's left is to call action, 
and that started filming, you know, this vision. And then myself and uh, Deion Taylor, who was my partner on that project, um, we decided to uh, co-direct it together um, to take off some of the weight because I was wearing so many hats. And um, that became my directorial debut, and I, and I fell in love with it at that point, and I realized that I knew so much more than what I thought I did about actually directing. And I just felt that I was really good at it um, as well. But it was from all those independent films that we made, you know, with Barry, and we had to wear so many hats. And when you're doing it on that level that quick, you have to sort of understand so many different elements of filmmaking. And that was just all being registered subconsciously. And when I went to do this film, it was all there. And I was like, oh, snap. Like, I know how to do this. And I know how to do it good, too. And so uh, after that, I couldn't wait to, you know, to, to do it again and again and again. Was your next film, Laughing at the Bank, somewhat autobiographical? It was. It was like a modern-day Hollywood shuffle. Yeah, um, totally agree. About that, yeah, that film that I love is that, it was an ode to being independent and creating your own path in your own lane, independent of anyone. And I was like, yo, I want to make a film, um, and I want to put my best friend and my cousin and my brother in it, and this is what I wanted to be, and just being able to go out and do that. You know, it's not too many people that can do that. And so this, this, this uh, you know, this history of independence with myself sort of allowed me to do that. And it was basically like a just, you know, a modern-day Hollywood shuffle if you had to, you know, call it anything, man. <laughs> I, just, I just thought I thought the film was funny. And, uh, and, uh, and, it, and, you know, it came out really cool, man, and I watch it, and it's my actual real-life best friend, um, actual brother, my actual cousin who we grew up together <laughs> and we on this little, you know, journey and it was to agree very autobiographical. Yeah. Yeah, there's that whole bit that you have in there where you're going around doing auditions and then all the casting yeah. directors are trying to compare you to other black comics. Yeah. And watching <laughs> you know, I was instantly reminded of Hollywood Shuffle when Robert was talking about um you know, they want an Eddie Murphy type for every single role. And yeah. a lot of folks yeah. remember that, you know, back in the day with scripts and everything, they would always have in the script an Eddie Murphy type. So it's right. just crazy. So, yeah, shout, shout out and kudos to you for doing that. Do you feel yeah, that the early right. role deals you made proved to be beneficial later on in your life? The early what? The early roles and deals you made. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, like I could say today where I stand, man, without that, um, I don't know where I would be. If, I, if, we, if we didn't gamble on ourselves, Barry and I, with that first 13 grand with Q and make that horrible movie that was funny that did $800,000, um, the, the difference between us and John Doe or anyone else is 
we took a shot. We didn't wait for ideal situation, ideal circumstance, ideal anything. We were motivated. We actually made a product that wasn't great, but we took a shot and won. And it was the action of actually doing that set me up to be where I am today to where I'm comfortable, opposed to waiting on someone to call me for a role. So all those things did play a huge part in who I am and what I am today. So the losses um, that we took and those lessons uh, provide more of a foundation than the victories. Um, You know, some people say that and you hear it, but it's actually very true. It's been very true in, in my journey. And so all those steps and all those films and all those things I was learning that I didn't know I was learning until I needed to know, and I was like, oh, shit, I know that, um, played a part into me being the person I am today. And, again, the difference in, you know, me may not have done a studio film or TV in X years, but I'm still good because of the independence and the things that I learned and how I stepped out on my own to create my own path. Yes. Were there ever any big roles that you turned down that you had a chance to do? Um, there are uh, a few things that folks um, that were – I'm trying to think. Uh, there were some things that would come across the desk and the agent would say, hey, yo, they want to see you for this, or hey, yo, they want you to be a part of this. And, again, the, the difference between just being an actor and just waiting for them to call and me, like, either in production, in pre-production, or in post-production, or vacationing before I start the next production, I always had something to do. And I was always on my journey moving forward. So I wasn't at the mercy of whatever they wanted me to do. Um, so there there weren't a lot, but there were a few things. Uh, um, you know, the one was the, the, uh, the Eddie Murphy one. We had all the people in his head. What was that? Big Dave. Meet Dave, where he was the robot or the spaceship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it was that one, and uh, which I think was his, you know, Eddie's worst performing movie ever. <laughs> but it, it happened to be like literally, like it, it, it really tanked, and and it was when they sent it, it was just like, okay, I'm gonna be a flamboyant gay dude in Eddie Murphy's head. And I remember I was I was uh on the set of uh I think we were in, in Australia shooting Fool's Gold and Matthew McConaughey and those guys and and I just was like I, I was like I don't think I wanna do that. As much as it would be dream come true to share the stage in any capacity with Eddie Murphy I don't want to be the flamboyant gay dude in his head and he named Dave. I was like, I'm going to take my chances and wait and hopefully get in another Eddie Murphy movie. 
but I'm, I'm not going to be gay Dave in the brain. And so uh, that is something I was like, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> um, and then the movie came out and it was bad, which would have made it worse. If it was a big hit and you was the gay dude in Eddie Murphy's head, then, you know, okay, but if it's a bomb and you're like, you know, there's a million people in his head and you're the little flamboyant. I, no, I, I just, it, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my thing. Had to pass on that. And, I mean, Eddie's, to me, Eddie's another one to where I think he just does kind of like, you know, kind of where you are now. He does what he wants to do just for the hell of it, just because he's made, possibly right. because he's bored. Because, I mean, very few comics or actors can say that your first ten movies are all, like, you know, considered classes by a lot of people. I mean, at least in my opinion. You know, Eddie's like, Eddie's run from uh, 48 Hours all the way up to Boomerang. He really doesn't have a bad one in there outside of Best Defense. And like he said, you know, when if they would have paid you what they paid me to, be, to do Best Defense, you would drove a tank too. Right. Um, I, I think uh, I agree with you 1,000%. Like, he's really next level. You know what I mean? The trading places, you know what I mean? And and all those joints, his comedy specials, you know what I mean? Delirious, raw, you know, it, it's just been really nothing like that. You know what I mean? Um, really nothing like that. And, you know, and he, he was, and he's very much now at a point where he does what he wants to do because he can. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. just a, that's just an amazing place to be because not many artists get to there. You know, they they don't get there where they can do what they want, how they want, because you know what I mean. They're, they're sort of at the mercy of whomever. So, you know, a legend, a, a living legend, definitely. As someone who's been in the industry for twenty four years, and now you're pursuing doing your stand up thing, how have you adapted? to the changing landscapes of comedy? Comedy was something that uh, some of my peers had already been pushing me to do because of, you know, the history of, you know, a, a lot of my films being comedy. Um, it's like, yo, you got the timing, you got the bitch, you got the fat, you know, people know you, you need to be doing this. Um, but I never wanted to cheat stand-up because I respected it, and it is literally one of the hardest parts. You know what I mean? There's no cut. There's no retake. There's no none of that. If it's not going well, you just sit through it. You know what I mean? And so I respected that, and I never wanted to cheat or go and take people's money and steal people's money when I wasn't ready. So I had to you know, wait to a time, and I was so busy making these independent films so I could really, um, really give the energy to it. And so that what happened maybe, I don't know, about five years ago um, to where I really started building, I made it a priority and really started, you know, studying and learning the intricacies of stand-up and then maybe a couple of years ago, which was three years after I started, I said, okay, I'm ready to start taking this thing out 
on the road and showing people. And it has been the most amazing experience ever. And, again, the most difficult form of entertainment is stand-up, but also the most rewarding. And um, I'm definitely in love with it and um, definitely excited about, you know, the future with stand-up and myself. And I will have a special out on Netflix that we'll be shooting nine to 12 months from now, maybe closer to 12 now because of everything with this uh, corona, but you will see the first uh, Brian Hook special on Netflix um, next year sometime. So I'm super-duper excited about that. And a lot of my same peers who are like, yo, you got to stand up, man, man, you got to get out of there, man, you got to do it, you got to do it. And when I started doing it, what I noticed is they were coming out to see me fail and follow my face, but they didn't know that I had did the homework and the work in the closet, you know, before I stepped on the stage. A lot of those people that were like, no, you got to do it. Now they know where to be found and and, <laughs> and, and uh, haven't lent uh, anything towards my stand-up, but the special is going to be dope, and I think people are going to receive it. Well, looking forward to that. Yeah. Who's one artist, musical story you'd like to see told on the big screen? An artist story that I would like to see told on the big screen. Yeah, I'm, I'm big in music. I'm big in the musical biopics. That's probably my favorite genre. A musical biopic, man. You know, I I would. I would have to say, like, man, like a, uh, you know, cause I'm from, I would say like a, like a LL Cool J, or someone like that. Like those cats, when when they were, when they were doing it, it was like a different time. It was different shit going on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I would love to journey it inside to see that. So like. Any, any anybody in that era of hip hop back then, as you know, they did the biggie, they did the pop, but there was a story with the Cool J and the Kumo D and the Dana Dane and the Slick Rick and like if they can dive into that, like I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Yeah, you're the first one to say that, and I don't think a lot of folks know that LL has a hell of a story. So I mean, starting out at 15, and then getting to where he, you know, eventually got to from the, the battles he had to do to being seen as a sellout when he did I Need Love and, you know, being seen right. as soft. Yeah, LL definitely has a story to tell. Yeah. yeah. All right, speaking on music, in your downtime, who were some of the hip-hop NRB artists you like to listen to? E-40. I'm a, I'm, that's, that's my favorite rapper of all, and, you know, then E-40 was my favorite rapper before I ever met him. So to meet him and work with him in Three Strikes, then again in Malibu, again, it's because of those things where it's like surreal, like, you know, it's just amazing. But uh, E-40 is always um, queued up. R&B, one of my favorite groups, is, is, is a guy. I love all that stuff, Tony, Tony, Tony. 
And then everything new, too. Like, I'm digging the young stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I might talk about them, but I'd be the first one bobbing my head when some of their stuff come on. And it's just, you know, a lot of the old school, new school folks, they, you know, there's, there's this friction because music is different now. Like, you can, you know, you, you can do a hook throughout the whole song, bridge, the verse, everything just in the song, and it can be a hit. And you, all you did was a hook. But that's the evolution of music. That's where it's at. You know what I mean? And so, you know, like it, I love it, you know. I accept it. So, but I'm a big musical dude because I'm a, I'm a creative dude. You'll catch me listening to classical in the car. You know what I mean? My next film, Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, the, I wrote the whole thing to like Nina Simone. Um, so I'm I'm very, you know, moody when it comes to music and you know and inspired by different music. So it's really. I think heavy metal is maybe the only thing that I don't listen to. Cool. cool. So before we close out, what advice do you have for aspiring young film filmmakers? Create your own path in your own lane. Um, when I was doing it, as I mentioned before, it wasn't the most popular thing, but it put me in a position of power and to be able to sustain myself. And now there's so many avenues and outlets um, that are independent-friendly and that sort of cater to that independence that it's no reason for you to be sitting around waiting, trying to figure it out, asking for anybody for anything. You have to figure out a way to get your film and your project made. And with the equipment out now, it has sort of made it to where you don't have to have a gazillion dollars for all this equipment. They have some very inexpensive equipment that you can buy that if you do your homework, you can make and shoot a, a, a very high-quality film. And so even if you don't know how to direct or if you don't know how to write or you don't know how to do the camera, um, you know, get on your phone and you can find someone close to you who all they want to do is, you know, be a DP and do camera work. You find another person who wants to direct. You can find a gazillion people who want to act. Go out, make your own film. Make your own short film and put it in motion. You know what I mean? Solicit all these avenues of distribution and get it out there. And it's, it's so, so, so doable right now. So I would tell anybody looking to get into filmmaking or any – Everybody was aspiring to be, man, just to go out and figure out a way to make it happen by yourself, create your own projects, and execute them. Don't wait until ideal circumstances, ideal time, that may or may not come. Go make it happen, work backwards from what you had. And I'll remind you, Q, horrible movie, made for no money, that was funny, and extremely successful. So that's, an, uh, again, an example of not knowing everything, not having everything, but still succeeding and laying down the groundwork for a very fruitful and successful um, career and journey. So you've got to create your own project. Go make it happen. Is there anything you'd like to add? And where can fans find you on social media? They can find me at the Brian Hooks. 
the Brian Hooks on uh, Instagram and uh, and uh, Facebook. And um, you know, I got you know, I, I'm a businessman, so I've sort of been restructuring, reprogramming, and helping a lot of people behind. Uh, the scenes with their work, but now with the business of, like I was just saying, the distribution and everything sort of being full circle and the avenues for independent work are um, are amazing right now. So I'm back to doing what I do and putting out these films. So I'm about to shoot a film called Adam and Eve that I wrote, produced, directed, and then I'm starring in. Um, it's sort of like a modern-day Jason's lyric, and so doing that, then I'm hitting, I'm redoing Fat Beach, so I'm doing the next, you know, hip-hop uh, beach movie, um, uh, doing one called, uh, a couple of other films that, that I can't mention, and a bigger film called uh, Relationship Goals, um, there will be a bigger studio film that it's likely looking like we're shooting in Dubai, um, so, and also with Bentley Evans, who is uh he was uh, a showrunner for Martin. He uh, created the Jamie Foxx show, a million other things. We're doing the Brian Hook show sitcom as well um, that uh, is set to go and not shooting uh, shooting the pilot in four episodes once they lift this band, man. So look out for that newness, man, and uh, hit me up. Hit me up, young filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers, actors. Hit me on my social media. You know, talk to me. I'll talk back. Cool, cool. All right, folks, we've had Mr. Brian Hooks as today's guest on the interview with Views and Done. I hope you all learned as much as I did. Uh, Mr. Hooks is a very accomplished brother, and he gave me some nuggets and some positivity to get, you know, get on my grind. So I want to thank Mr. Hooks for taking time out of his busy day to chop it up with me. And always remember, happiness is a quality of the soul, not a function of one's material circumstances. Till next time, done out. My man.